If you want to go ahead, have some left over, so we just got to make sure that I want to, I want to pray. And then Elsabeth's going to read for us chapter 16 of Genesis. Let me just ask the Lord to help us. Well, Father, I pray this morning that as we explore you and what you're doing in chapter 16, that you would make our hearts burn within us with the reality of who you are. Would you do that? Um, We want to encounter you. We want to see you. And so I ask, Spirit, that you would come and do what only you can do, and that is to stir our, our weak hearts, our, our passive hearts, our hearts that can be tired and distracted. Lord, would you, would you help us so that your word would have its intended effect in our hearts today, that we would rejoice in Christ and exalt Christ together, and that we would see uh, how you interact with us more clearly this morning as a result of this chapter. So even as Elsbeth reads, I pray that you would help us to understand what we read, help us to believe what we read, help us to love what we read, and then help us, I pray, to be doers of it, to receive it by faith. All the things you want to say to us this morning, may our hearts be wide open for you to say and do in us what you want. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, the servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have, been seen, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Laheroi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. 
Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is the word of the Lord. Well, evidently, after last Sunday's message, fire extinguishers were flying off the shelves of stores in Mount Airy. <laughs> evidently, some of you, I'm slightly exaggerating, but some of you did share with me how you made a quick trip to the store so that you would not find yourself in the situation that I found myself in a few weeks ago. But the reality is, I had a fire extinguisher. I had a fire extinguisher in the kitchen, and it wasn't far away. The problem was, I knew from having looked at my fire extinguisher previously in the year, that it wasn't charged. And it's got that little circle, a little needle that tells you it's in the green. Well, it's not in the green. And it wasn't in the green. And I knew it wasn't in the green. So I didn't even go for it. I wasn't even going to look at it. I, I knew I needed some water instead of this. The little dial on here tells me that this fire extinguisher is not ready for use. It's not ready to handle the challenge that it was going to face. The trial that it had to go through, it wasn't ready for it. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool if we had little dials on us? <laughs> little spiritual dials. I would benefit from that because often I don't even know how I'm doing spiritually. And I'd benefit, it, benefit from it pastorally because I could just go around and look at your dial. All right, that's kind of creepy. But wouldn't it be nice if there was a way we could know whether we were ready, whether we were charged and ready for whatever trial or battle or circumstance that we would find ourselves facing in the next day or week or month. Because often it's not until there's some sort of a trial or some sort of pressure or something unexpected or something we don't like happening in our lives that we find out how we're really doing spiritually. Really, that's when the proof is in the pudding, so to speak. Well, in chapter 16, that's what's happening with Abram and Sarai. We get to look at their spiritual gauge this morning. We get to see how they're doing spiritually. We actually get a glimpse into their hearts this morning. And we also get to see God's spiritual gauge. We're going to get a glimpse into the heart of God. What makes God beat? And we're going to see that also. Now, what's crazy about this chapter, as I've been mulling it over all week, is that it clearly divides into two parts. Verses 1 through 6 are dark. And verses 7 to 16 are glorious. And I think they're there that way so that we will notice the contrast between the two. Verses 1 through 6, dark. 7 to 16, light. 1 to 6, there's conflict. 7 to 16, there's peace. In 1 to 6, there's anger. In 7 to 16, there's love. In 1 to 6, we see, we see harsh behavior towards one another. In 7 to 16, we see compassion. In 1 to 6, there's blame. And in 7 to 16, there is blessing. So these two chapters are, couldn't be more diametrically opposed to one another as far as the mood that they are supposed to carry and the way that they're supposed to impact our hearts. And so we're going to look at it that way this morning. We're going to look, look at this in two separate scenes, two separate clips from a movie, part one and then part two. We're going to see how different they are. And as we do, we're going to continue to see that God is still doing everything he knew, needs to do in Abram's life and in Sarai's life so that Abram and Sarai will know God the way that God wants them to know God. And we're going to meet someone named Hagar. And we're going to see that God is going to do everything he needs to do in Hagar's life 
so that Hagar will know God the way that God wants Hagar to know God. So let's tackle the first, verse, first six verses together. Scene one. I don't know what you want to call it. I feel like if I had to put a title, it would be something like Marriage Conflict 101. <laughs> or, or the big fight between Sarai and Abram. So it's right off the heels of, you guys remember from last week, this covenant that God made with Abram. And it doesn't seem like a lot of time has passed. And now we find out that once again, Sarai still has not had a baby. We read that in verse 1. And this time, instead of that coming off the lips of Abram, it comes off the lips of the narrator. But then for the first time, we really get to hear Sarai's voice. Sarai is going to get to speak in this chapter. And if you followed along as Elizabeth read it, you realize that this chapter doesn't paint her in a very good light, does it? (laughs) But before we throw her and Abram under the bus, I think there are some things that we need to consider about their journey so that we better understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. So before we critique them and criticize them, Let's consider their journey together. There's, there's three little things I think that are important for us to realize so that we understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. The first is simply their situation. They have been waiting more than 10 years to have a baby. Verse 3 reminds us of that. That little fact is stuck in there so that our antennas will go up and realize they have been waiting a very, very, very long time to have a baby. Now, if you have struggled with infertility or you have a close friend who has struggled with infertility, you know how confusing, how painful, how heartbreaking it can be. You know the trial that it is. You know how it impacts your view of God, your view of others. You know how it can disrupt and, and, and form the way that you think about God. See, Abram and Sarah have been living 10 long years of infertility. I think before we jump to judge or criticize what they do, I think we need to have compassion on them. I feel like our hearts need to even break for them. They're real people who are dealing with all the hurts and pain of not having a child. So I think we need to have that as an umbrella over this story. And we also need to realize that Sarah's belief in the sovereignty of God still remains strong through this. I love what she says in verse 2. She says, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. So she's thinking rightly. Her, Her theology is spot on when it comes to the sovereignty of God. And we don't know from here or from anywhere else in the Bible what her heart attitude was like. I don't want to read into this. I don't know whether she is saying, behold, it's the Lord's fault. He's preventing me from having a baby. Or she's simply humbling her heart before God and saying, God is the one who's prevented this from happening. We don't know from the text whether she is humbly submitting or an angry blame is coming out of her heart. But either way, we know that she is acknowledging that God is sovereign over their infertility. And I think we can say at this point in the story that God is still continuing to do everything God needs to do in their lives so that they'll know God the way God wants them to know God. And in this case, God wants them to know God through waiting and waiting and waiting. Ten years is a long time to wait. But God is on a mission to show them things about himself 
that they would not learn otherwise. But in the waiting, Sarah not only acknowledges God's sovereignty, but she decides to set a plan into action, doesn't she? She decides that there's something she can do for the situation. So what does she do? She gives Hagar, her servant, to Abram. And we have to evaluate now why and what's going on there. And is this sinful? And so before we jump down that road, we need to understand that in their culture, that was a very common thing to do. If a, if a, if a woman couldn't have a baby, she would give her servant to her husband to marry so that she could have children on her behalf and the children actually become her children. So I think for them, this would have been a common thing. This wasn't, this wasn't some bizarre idea that Sarah concocted out of nowhere. This is, this is how you did things in their society. Now I want to be careful for a minute because I don't want us to think that it's okay for us to do everything the culture says is okay to do. God's word is our standard. We know that not what the culture does. But in this case, I don't know that Sarah and Abram would have thought of this as wrong. Does that make sense? There's nowhere previous in Genesis where God says, don't do this. So I'm not so sure that they are acting in rebellion against God, knowing this is not a good thing, as much as they're just taking what their culture does and enacting on it, maybe in a way to help God along a little bit with his promise. (laughs) We don't really know for sure. But I think we got to be careful not to assume immediately that these are sinful actions that she's taking and he's taking matters into his own hands, trying to help God fulfill his promise. Because I don't even know if that's really the main point of this story. I don't think that's really what God is going after. I think the main point is what happens next. I mean, this story just, it accelerates fast with conflict, doesn't it? I mean, this is a soap opera. This is, this is, all kinds of love triangle fighting and conflict going on. And the story seems to pick up speed really fast as the fight erupts between Sarai and Abram. The story tells us Abram listens to Sarai. Hagar gets pregnant. Hagar says and does some pretty harsh things to Sarai. Right? There's contempt there. There's, there's conflict there. Perhaps she's being disrespectful to Sarah, when she sees her, maybe there's passing words she says. Maybe she makes comments about her morning sickness. Maybe when Sarah walks by, Hagar rubs her tummy a little or holds her back. She's doing things to antagonize Sarai. And so Sarai responds in a very, very harsh way. But I think we've got to remember that Sarah's pain is real. I mean, you put herself in her shoes. Not only can she not have children, but now that, now that Hagar is pregnant, she knows that it's her fault. It's her body, not Abram, that's stopping her from having a baby. That had to be devastating. I mean, apart from her knowing it was the sovereignty of God, I can't imagine the guilt or the shame that she felt when her servant gets pregnant immediately and she's been waiting year after year after year. So her pain is real. Her pain is real. And what does she do with her pain? She blames Abram. Right? That's immediately where she goes. We have verse 5. She's going to repeat it twice. May the wrong done to me be on you. She's feeling hurt from Hagar. So what does she do? She blames Abram. Abram, this is your fault. If you hadn't done this, I wouldn't be in this situation. The pain I'm going through is from your hand. This is your doing. 
She takes it so far in verse 5 to go on to say, may the Lord judge between you and me. In other words, may God look at you and look at me and go, Abram, this is your fault. May God look at the two of us and immediately blame you, and may you be the one who's judged for getting us into this situation. Have you ever felt that way? I mean, Elspeth and I have never gotten into a fight, so we wouldn't know. But for those of you that have gotten into (laughs) conflicts, and you blame one another for different things that happen, and sometimes the pain and the hurt is there, and it's not even related to them, but you immediately blame them. Because somebody has to feel the same pain you're feeling. And this conflict is real. This is hurt. This is 10 years of pain all coming out in moments of, of hurtful words and lashing out in bitter judgments. And so she takes out her anger on her husband. And Abram's response is to tell her to take her anger out on Hagar. So he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't take your anger out on me. It's her fault. So he blames her. And deflects to her. And so what does Sarai do? She takes it out on Hagar. She diverts her anger from Abram, her wrath. And instead she turns it to to Hagar and begins to treat her harshly. So harshly that Hagar can't take it anymore. I I don't know how bad it would have to be before you would take your one or two little belongings as a servant, pregnant, and start to head on foot for Egypt. It must have been bad. I mean, she must have been really, really harassed to evacuate a safe place, if you will, to head through the desert, to head back towards her hometown of Egypt. Well, I'm not sure I can say with confidence that it was wrong for Sarai to give Hagar to Abram. But I can say that everything that happened from there on out sure seems to have a lot of sin in it. It sure seems to give me an insight into that gauge where they're at spiritually as the reality of not having a child comes true and and they take things into their own hands and conflict erupts and there's mistreating and blaming and sin. I think it's fair to say that what happened after that was wicked. But I don't think it's just because of the fighting and the blaming and the mistreating that we can conclude that. Because if you've listened, as Elspeth read, this story has some echoes of a previous story, doesn't it? I mean, listen to these phrases. And he listened to the voice of his wife. And she gave her to him, and they blamed each other. Does that sound familiar in any way? Right? I mean, that is Genesis 2. That's the fall. Genesis 3. That's the fall. Right? It's it's Adam listened to the voice of his wife. She gave him the fruit. They ate it. Hell broke loose, and they blamed each other. And that's exactly what happens here. And I think there's echoes of that so the reader, so that us would go, all right, this is just the fall being played out in people's lives. This is what we do as humans. We get into situations that are painful. And we find ourselves very quickly blaming one another and trying to find ways to escape. And the pattern continues to this day. So scene one ends with Abram and Sarai at each other's throats. Sarai being very harsh with Hagar, and Hagar fleeing away. I mean, this first part of the chapter is dark. It's filled with conflict and anger and hurt. There's harsh words. There's depression. There's blame and judging. No one is happy. I mean, this is just hard, painful life. And then in verse 7 with the introduction of a new character, the entire mood shifts immediately. It's meant to jar us how quickly 
the story changes in mood. It begins with verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness. The angel of the Lord shows up. And from, from this moment on, the whole mood changes. The whole story changes. Everything about what happens changes from here on out. Who, who is this angel of the Lord? Who, who, who is he and why is he there? Well, I first read the angel of the Lord. I think, well, it's kind of like, is this like Gabriel? Like, here I am. And, or is it something else or someone else? Well, this is the first time in God's word in our story through Genesis where we read about this angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is the first time. And, and he will show up again in future chapters of the Old Testament. But who is he? Well, the first hint that we have as to who he is actually comes from the words of Hagar. I want you to look at verse 13 so we can figure out who he is. So it says, Hagar called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing, or you are the God who sees me. For she said, truly I have seen him who looks after me. You see where she's calling him? She identifies him as Lord. She identifies him as God. So this angel of the Lord is no mere angel. He is actually God coming to speak to her. We, in Bible college seminary, we call this a theophany. Anytime there's a theophany, we call it a Christophany, meaning this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. This is Jesus. I just want to read this one quote here. I thought this was helpful. Don Stewart writes this, On a number of occasions in the Old Testament, when the angel of the Lord appeared, it seemed to be the Lord himself. So he's, got a, he's, he's, done all of, he's taken all the passages, and he's giving us this summary statement. The angel has attributes that belong to God and God alone. In addition, he is addressed as the Lord. If this be the case, then he is not a created being, but God himself who took on angelic form. Though some have thought it to be God the Father, this would be more likely to be an instance of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, coming to earth for a short time in human form. There's scriptures I'd encourage you guys to go to later, other places where the angel of the Lord shows up that help verify this, that this is most likely Jesus, pre-incarnate, coming down and touching the earth. Now, what makes this so remarkable is that this is the first time the angel of the Lord's feet touch the earth, or we could say Jesus' feet come down to earth since creation. And when he does, who does he come to see? Hagar. And verse 1 seems to go to great lengths to make sure that we know exactly who Hagar is. Who is she in verse 1? She's female and servant. So the first time in redemptive history 
that God manifests himself in a human-type way to come to the earth to talk to someone. He does it to a female Egyptian servant. Now, I don't know if you understand the culture then, but this wasn't like coming to see a superstar. Jesus doesn't show up to see Ed Sheeran. He's coming down to earth to visit with a servant from Egypt who is a female. Now, you may know this already, but in their culture, sadly, women were second-class citizens. Even little boys outranked women in their time. So she was the lesser of the genders. She is Egyptian. Now, if we believe Moses wrote this and he's handing it to God's people, he's not going into the promised land, and they're about to go into the promised land. They've already been through all their deal with Egypt. So when they hear that this woman is Egyptian, that is really bad. I mean, they would have had memories or at least heard stories about their great-great-grandparents who died at the hands of Egyptians. Maybe they even knew family members who died at the hands of Egyptians. They may have had daughters and sons that were taken away to live in Pharaoh's house to never be seen again. I mean, Egyptians were bad. I hate to make this comparison, but it would almost be like Nazis, like it would, as if it said she was a Nazi who, who killed, her people were killing Jews. Like, this is bad. So when they read this, they were like, okay, she's a woman. We're God's people here. And he's showing up to speak to a woman who, who's an Egyptian, and she's a servant. She's powerless. She really has no authority, no opinions. Her desires are secondary at best. So she's the lesser gender, a bloodline of a wicked enemy, and at the bottom of the scale economically. Yet the very first time Jesus comes to earth, pre-incarnate, who does he speak to? To her. He comes to Hagar, and only to Hagar as the angel of the Lord. Remember, there's lots of ways God could have done this. With Abram, he's shown up to Abram in visions, right? He's spoken to him in dreams, but never has he manifested himself this way to even Abram. And yet here he is manifesting himself to Hagar in a very unique way. And I want you to look at the way he sees her. I want you to look at how he describes her. Look at verse 8. Because this, this helps understand even more how he is seeing her. How, how he views her in verse 8. He sees her as a servant. you see that? And he said to her, Hagar, servant of Sarai. So she is a servant. Then he goes on to say, where are you going and where did you come from? And she says, I am fleeing from my mistress. So she is fleeing. She is, she's not going from anywhere specific to somewhere else. She's a sojourner, you would say. So she's a sojourner and she's a servant. And if you look down to the middle of the poem in verse 11, he says, the Lord has listened to your affliction. Now, I know this, this is where our, our minds have got to be gears going, coffee engaged, thinking, servant, fleeing, affliction. Servant, sojourner, affliction. Where have we heard this before? Chapter 15. Look at chapter 15 with me. I think this is significant. This shows us how he is viewing her, how the angel of the Lord sees her. Look at verse 15. 
He is saying that God's people, he says, verse 13, then the Lord, this is chapter 15, verse 13, then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be, and here are the three words, sojourners in a land that is not theirs, there will be servants there, and they will be afflicted. As soon as I read them, I'm like, wait a minute, do you know what God is saying here? Hagar's going to be considered part of the family. She's being included Here's the description of God's people. Here's the description of Hagar. They match. And if they match, I think it's that God is trying to communicate something. That Hagar is not an outcast. That God doesn't see Hagar the way that everyone else is viewing Hagar in the story. She's unique. She's treasured. She's important. She's seen by God. I think we're getting a window here into the type of people that God looks after, the people that God sees, the people that God listens to in their affliction. And I think this is just the first little glimpse. And did you catch the similarities between this encounter and a future encounter that Jesus will have? Think about it. We've got a woman, and where is she? Look at verse 14. She's at a well. So I've got a woman at a well. I've got a woman at a well who is from a despised people group. I've got a woman at a well from a despised people group who's alone because she doesn't want to be treated harshly. I've got a woman at a well from a despised people group alone so she won't be harassed that returns home afterwards to tell people how she encountered the the Lord. Does that not sound familiar? Do you see the pattern The type of person that Jesus is drawn to. The type of person that God is drawn to. This is just another story that matches perfectly what Jesus does when he meets the woman at the well in Samaria. And what I love about the story in John, where Jesus encounters her, and then the disciples come moseying back, thinking about food and lunch. It says they marveled that Jesus would be talking to a woman. They marveled that he was talking to a Samaritan woman. And I think we're supposed to read this story about Hagar, and we're supposed to marvel. We're supposed to marvel. Our our hearts are supposed to be moved that your God loves the outcast. He loves those who are insignificant or feel insignificant. Those who are troubled and in pain. Those who the culture would say really aren't that important. When God shows up for the first time, when Jesus shows up pre-incarnate the first time, that's exactly who he pursues. That's exactly who he finds. And I love the way there's repetition in here to make sure that we get it, that this is not just anybody, but this is the angel of the Lord that's speaking to her. The repetition is almost weird. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord found her. Verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to her. Verse 10, the angel of the Lord also said to her. Verse 11, and the angel of the Lord said to her. Did you have to repeat it four times? Yes, because he wants to make sure the reader knows that the angel of the Lord came to earth to talk to Hagar, an Egyptian servant filled with affliction. That's who God comes to see. And what does he say to her when he shows up? Well, he makes her promises. And if you caught the promises, 
She's going to have more offspring than you can count. That sounds familiar, right? Parallel to Abram, same thing. Look at the stars. I'm going to give you that many kids. Well, here he is again. God's throwing out a promise. I'm going to give you as many offspring as you won't even be able to count them, Hagar. So he promises to bless her that way. He tells her his name should be Ishmael. And then he warns her that he is going to have a serious case of ADD. A wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And so he explains to her what's going to happen ahead of time. I feel like we get to see just a little bit into her spiritual gauge, what's happening in her heart, and how this impacted her by the way she responds to all of this. We get a glimpse into God's gauge, who God goes after, who God loves, who God pursues, but we also see how she receives this in verses 13 and 14. And for me, this is the, this is the if, there was, if it was a movie, this is like the, where the music gets to that triumph at the end when we hear her talking about how this landed on her, how this encounter affected her. So look at verse 13. It says, So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. Or you are the God who sees me, is another way it could be translated. You're the God who sees me. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. This angel of the Lord, this God, sees me. He, he looks after me. Verse 14, Therefore the well was called Baralakaro, the well of the living one who sees me. You, I could just see her heart. I mean, think about it. She's been a slave, a rejected slave with no rights, never getting respect from everyone, anyone, probably never getting loved by anyone in any way. And all of a sudden, God is speaking to her. And I can hear her singing this out. The God who sees me. I have seen him who looks after me. The one who sees me. And she is celebrating that. She's very aware of the fact that God has come down to show her that she sees her in her affliction. You see, God is doing everything he needs to do in Hagar's life so that Hagar will know God the way that God wants Hagar to know God so that she will give God the amen. And that's what she's doing right here. God wants Hagar to know him as the one who listens to us in our afflictions, the God who sees you, the God who looks after you. And this is not just limited to Hagar, because we know as the scriptures continue to unfold that this is the God that we love and that we serve, because he's not just the God who sees us this morning, although he does, but he's the God that sees you this morning. You may be in affliction right now, and you go, yes, that's such good news. Or maybe you're not, but you will be soon. Maybe you know someone who's in this situation, and they just need to be reminded this morning, God sees you this morning. God sees you in your trial. He sees you in your affliction. He hasn't overlooked you. I love stacking up the phrases in this chapter that tell us about how God pursued her. Verse 7, it says God found her. 
Verse 10, he blesses her. Verse 11, he listens to her. Verse 13, he speaks to her. Verse 14, he sees her. And verse 14, he looks after her. There's your God. He finds you, he blesses you. He listens to you, he speaks to you, sees you, and looks after you. It's not limited just to Hagar. It's you. It's you. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that God has found you? Do you believe that God is blessing you? Do you believe that he listens to you, and especially in your affliction, that he speaks to you, that he sees you, that he looks after you? See, I think this story is meant to just stir amazement in our hearts over the character of God, over what God is like. God does not value people the way the world does, based on performance or looks or abilities or success. It's not how God rolls. This story is meant to reveal God's compassionate, loving kindness to those who are harshly treated, afflicted, considered outcasts. It's interesting. This very first introduction to the angel of the Lord, we find him listening and seeing and looking after Hagar. I had to really fight this week so that I could try to feel what I think I'm supposed to feel in this story. Because honestly, I can't relate to Hagar like I wish I could. Not just because I'm not a woman. But I don't see myself as needy as her, or as afflicted as her, or as suffering as her. I mean, after all, everything is going pretty well in life. So when I read this story, I go, that's nice. He was nice to Hagar. But I can struggle to have it impact me the way that I think it's supposed to impact me. So it took me a while to figure out that in reality, I am less worthy for God to speak to me this way or to love me this way or to see me this way than Hagar. Because after all, I know way more about God than Hagar does. I have the spirit of the living God living in me, and yet I rebel against God way more than Hagar. And so the reality that he would see me, speak to me, notice me, come to me, should be amazing. Amazing. Because in light of everything I know about God and what God expects from me and how I live, I am certainly less worthy than her. And how glorious it is that this angel of the Lord, Jesus, would one day actually come in the flesh to die, to pursue us, so that he could send his spirit in us, so that you and I today could see him for who he really is. And so I just pray, may God help us. May God help us to see our lives more parallel with Hagar, perhaps, than Sarai and Abram. May we be willing and desirous to embrace everything that God does in our lives. Because God is going to do everything God needs to do so that you and I will know God, the way God wants us to know God, so that he will get the amen. Amen? I don't know where you are, but I pray that if you are afflicted, if you are suffering, if you feel like an outcast, useless, <laughs> failure, whatever the list is, the things that come into your head, that you hear God speak to you, that he sees you, that he listens to you, that he's looking after you 
this morning. Let me pray. I'm going to sing a song after I pray here. Lord Jesus, I ask you to help us. Lord Jesus, I don't know where everyone in this room is at today. I don't know who feels like an outcast or a second-class citizen. I don't know who's afflicted or suffering. But God, I, I pray that for any of my friends in this room who feel that way, that you would have them hear you say very loud and clear that you see them, that you love them, and that you're there for them. I ask, Lord Jesus, that they would hear what you say about them and not what they're hearing in their heads about themselves. May they hear what's true. May they hear your perspective of them. And Lord, for those who are not in a season right now of crisis or trial or affliction or hurting, God, I pray that you would strengthen their hearts so that they could be an encouragement to others who are suffering, who are afflicted, who do feel useless, second class. And God, you would also prepare them for what the future holds. One thing is certain, Jesus, you promised us that in this life we would face suffering and trials. So we know it's coming. And I pray that you would use these verses to strengthen our hearts so that we be prepared not only for ourselves for future struggles and trial, but for helping others through future struggles and trials. Jesus, I pray that you would awaken our hearts, our lives, that we would see you for as glorious as you really are. May we embrace you for who you are. Thank you for seeing us. Thank you for seeing me. You are a very kind God and very merciful. We praise you this morning for all you do and continue to do in our lives. Help us, I pray. Help us to take this little chapter in the story and may it have its intended effect on our hearts this week. In Jesus' name, amen.